John chapter 15, what an amazing month we had last month celebrating the Reformation. Five Sunday month, five solas. We were able to go through each sola uh, as in-depth as possible for a, a Sunday sermon. Just an amazing time celebrating what God did so many years ago and uh, always reforming. Right, That was the cry of the Reformation. If there's ever a time when we would stray from the clear teaching of God's Word, regarding the justification of sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, then we need to reform. We need to go back to the authority of God's Word alone. Um, we have the privilege now of diving back into our study of the Gospel of John. We are still in the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse in the Gospel of John is chapters 13 through 17. It all takes place on one night, Thursday night of the Passion Week, five full chapters for one amazing evening. Jesus is preparing his disciples. They are, are going to be struggling with everything that's happening because he's going to go away, but he's making sure they're ready for him to go away. They're ready and equipped for him uh, to leave and them to carry on the ministry that he has begun. The main lesson in all of these chapters is that there's a tight unity between Jesus and his followers, that even though he's about to leave them, they can still remain in him and he will remain with them even though he's gone. How does that work? Living in the light of Jesus who was here is gone, but um, we can still have a relationship with him. He's telling his disciples three main things, that he's going away, that they cannot come with him, and that now it's their task to continue the ministry that he began. And the question is, how are they supposed to do that? And the answer is the relationship that they have with him and with others. So Verses 1 through 11 in chapter 15, just to remind us of where we are, have to do with the relationship of the vine to the branches, our relationship to Jesus. Verses 12 through 17 that we're going to look at this morning have to do with our relationship to one another, branch to branch. And then verses 18 through 27, which we'll look at next Sunday, and we'll kind of have an international day of prayer for the persecuted church part two, because next Sunday is the relationship of the vine and the branches to the world. And God is very clear what that relationship looks like. It's a difficult one. It's one where the world hates us, and we'll see the reasons why. But here this morning, as we've seen and had our foundation in the relationship of the branches to the vine, vine and the branches, this morning we will see Jesus' commandment to the branches to the branches. Branch to branch, how are we supposed to live? So, if you have your Bibles, John 15, let's start in verse 12 and read through verse 17. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Father, we have sung rich songs that deal with the love of God. It's greater far than we could ever express, than we could ever tell. It has pardoned sinners. It's declared those who are legally guilty and spiritually dead 
Christ, declared them not guilty and alive in Christ. We did not do that on our own. As Ryan prayed this morning, the only thing that we contributed to that was our sin that made the cross necessary. These words in John 15 are so clear. They hardly need any exposition, but their application is so challenging. God, I praise you for CBC. We have a loving family. We have a loving group of people. But I pray that we would excel still more and that as your word is clearly seen, as Jesus clearly teaches, the extent of our love for one another is a very high standard. So God, help us today to live out the love of Christ because we are living on the love of Christ. And may Jesus be magnified as we image his character to one another. They will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Teach us to love this morning. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Three main points that are very clear in this section of Scripture. It's all about love. Book ended. This is my commandment. Love one another. This is my commandment. Love one another. So clearly this is about love. It's about our relationship to one another, branch to branch. And Jesus is going to tell us three things. Number one, the extent of our love. Number two, the intimacy of our love. And number three, the origin of our love or the source of our love. So the extent, the intimacy, and the origin or the source of our love. Let's first look at the extent. This is verses 12 through 13. This is my commandment. Just stop right there. Of all the things that Jesus could say and all of the things that Jesus does say as far as commandments that he would give, he boils them all down. This is the singular commandment that I'm leaving with you because if you can live this commandment out rightly, you'll be doing all the other commandments rightly as well. He says, love one another. Love one another. And then he tells us the extent of that love. It's not just love one another. It's love one another just as I have loved you. If love were easy to do, if loving one another was easy, this wouldn't be a command. It wouldn't need to be a command. But just think, at the beginning of this evening, the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest of the disciples. I'm better than you, Peter, you always have your foot in your mouth, I don't, I'm a better person than you are, and I'm going to be at God's right hand when the kingdom comes. That's why Jesus had to, in John 13, give them an example that they should follow as he washes their feet. It's not about greatness and position with power. True Christian love and true Christian leadership and maturity is service, humble service towards one another out of Christ-like love and humility. To claim to be a Christian without loving other believers is hypocrisy, it's pretending, and according to these verses, it's delusional. There's no way to be a Christian without loving other believers. Not perfectly, but progressively. There's no way that you can be a Christian if you are not progressively, intentionally loving other believers. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. J.C. Ryle says it this way. He that supposes he is right in the sight of God 
because his doctrinal views are correct, while he is unloving in his temper, sharp, cross, and snappish, I like that word a lot, and ill-natured in the use of his tongue, exhibits wretched ignorance of the first principles of the Christian gospel. This crossfulness, this spitefulness, this jealousy, maliciousness, and general disagreeableness of many high professors of sound doctrine are a positive scandal to Christianity. Where there is little love, there is evidence of little grace. It's clear if you aren't loving others that you don't understand the love that you've been given. And that's why Jesus says, here's the extent of the love that you should have for one another, just as I have loved you. Just as I have, just as I'm about to, at the cross, just as I will always love you. This is the game changer. This extent is magnificent. It's reiterated for us in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Remember, husbands, love your, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's the same language here. Um, just as I have loved you, and I'm going to give myself for you, as I have kept you, as I have been humbly serving you, and now as I go to the cross and die for you, love one another that way. Self-sacrificially. Jesus died for his church. One of the questions that I ask husbands a lot, and I ask of my own soul a lot, is how are you dying for your wife? Husbands, if, you're, if you are living with your wife in a way that would please God, the question is, how are you dying for her? How are your desires being killed to live for her desires? Just as Jesus willingly died for us, we should willingly die for others. And I believe the actual physical action of that wouldn't be the hardest, right? Dying for your friend, actually physically dying, though that would be very difficult and challenging. It's a lot easier to do that in one moment than it is a lifetime of little decisions of self-sacrifice where you say, I want this, but I'm going to die to myself and give of myself to my spouse. Husbands, love your wives to the extent that Jesus loved the church. How are you dying for your spouse? Back in John 15, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you love others. That means you love unlovely people. You love people that are difficult to love. You love people that betray you. You love people that don't like you. Think of all of the disciples in this room. You have Peter. Always says the right thing of, I'm going to be there and, and I'll die with you. And he's going to end up denying him. Can't back it up. Makes promises that he can't fulfill. Or Judas. Just out and out betrayer, rebellious, liar, at the Lord's Supper, he's going to say, is it I who's going to betray you? Is it I? He knows it's him. Is it I? And Jesus says, love others the way that I have loved you. We love unlovely people. You know those people. You see them in the church parking lot, and you, you think to yourself, is there anywhere that I can be besides where I am right now? It's hard to love some people. That's why Jesus gives us this command. You have to love unlovely people. The reality is, according to the gospel, we are far worse than anyone around us in the sight of God. And he died for us, so we should be able to do the same for others. His love is the source. It's the model of what love really looks like. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I believe that 
1 John is John's exposition of the upper room discourse. John was there. John remembers it. And I think that John is writing these things down as an exposition of what he heard from his master in the upper room. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. John says this, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We know what love is by Jesus' example to us. Loving unlovely people, difficult people, saving his enemies, and wooing them, redeeming them, turning them into his friends. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, This is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Notice John says that's one command. In my Bible, it says it's two very clearly. This is His commandment that we believe and love. But it is singular in the Greek. This is my commandment. It's not, these are my commandments, because if you have the one, you will have the other. If you believe truly in the name of Jesus you will love others just as he loved us. And it's not an option. Go to 2 John. 2 John doesn't have chapters, so we just say 2 John 5 because there is no chapter 2, verse whatever. 2 John 5 says this, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. He's given you a commandment to love others. And if you are going to truly be one of his disciples, you will obey him. It's not optional Christian behavior. (laughs) We tend to categorize the people that, oh, you are a very loving person, and you are a very unloving person, or it's just not your thing. No, if you're a believer, you should be known by your love. It should exude from you. Back to John 15, Jesus says, just as I have loved you. What is Jesus' example? What is his example of love? How does he love us? I think the best definition of that is in Romans chapter 5. Turn to Romans chapter 5, and you will see how Jesus loves us. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, so there's going to be a, a number of Name, names that we are called in this passage. And they're never good. <laughs> we are helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we've been called four names here very clearly. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. And God says, I love you. And I will crush my son in your place while you are those four things. And I will make you my friend. Sinners are first loved as enemies of Jesus before they are loved as friends of Jesus. And so our Christian love involves an imitation of that, sacrifice. Our Christian love involves risk. Our Christian love involves vulnerability. If you live out Christ-like love, you will be hurt. You will be betrayed. You won't be loved back all the time. 
Judas never loved Jesus back. And yet he still freely gave his love. It will be one way a lot of the time. That's why Jesus says, this is the example I'm giving. Love this way. Love in a way that it hurts. Love in a way that it hurts. What does this love look like practically? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know this section of scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the love chapter, often read at weddings. And yes, you, you can live out this love in a marriage, and you definitely should, but this is specifically to the body of Christ, to the local church. This is how love should look in a local church. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong, I'm a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, but I, can, I, I have faith and I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it produces nothing. I can do a lot of external things, acts of service, acts of ministry, acts of miraculous nature, but if there's no love in my heart, it profits me nothing. Okay, Paul, so what does love look like? Love is patient. Love is patient. Love can be wronged and abused and not react or retaliate. That's what patient means. I can be wronged, I can be abused, and I will not react or retaliate. I'm patient. Love is kind. It's kind of the inverse of that. I am, uh, patience is receiving wrong and responding well. Kindness is giving and extending love. So not only will I wear the hurt, will I own the hurt, am I okay and I won't retaliate, but I will turn right back around in love, in kindness. Love is not jealous. Jealous is, I want what you have. And it doesn't brag, I have what you want. We're so prideful. Paul says, hang on, time out. You can't love and be jealous or be bragging. Love does not act unbecomingly. It's not arrogant. It's not puffed up. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It's not rude. It doesn't seek its own. It's not self-seeking. It lays down its life. What it wants, it says, I don't need to have, and it dies for somebody else. It's not provoked. You can't pick a fight with somebody who loves like this. I don't know if you've ever seen that on display. It's one of the most magnificent things to see on display. When somebody is angry and mad and they're trying to get you or somebody that you're watching to just bite, to, to bite onto a, a landmine that they threw in the road, say, just here, just, I hope that this will explode and it will make you explode and you will lash out in anger. And with a smile on their face, they're just saying, you can win. Go ahead. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to fight. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't have a list of things that you've done wrong. It doesn't say, yes, I forgave them, but it says, I forgave them. It's, it's gone. Just as Christ loves me and does not remember my sin anymore. He chooses. He can't forget. He's God. God doesn't forget, but he chooses. I will not bring this up. I will not remember this anymore. I won't bring it back up. Forgiven, done. It bears all things. You can't break this love. This love is thick. It can't be snapped. It believes all things. It, it will die believing the best about you. It hopes all things. Even when it sees the worst, it's hoping the best. And it endures all things. If our love was really like this, what would happen in our church? How would our relationships change? We, we talked to 
uh, about a month ago in John 15 about smooth relationships. This kind of love produces a smooth relationship. One where you're unafraid, one where you can love freely and with no demand of being loved back because you know Jesus has loved you and that's all the love you need. So my question to us this morning is, are we moving progressively in the body in this kind of love? Do you see where you struggle? Sin is deceitful, right? It hardens our hearts. We're blinded by logs in our own eyes. We can tend to think, oh, this is loving. This thing that I do is loving, but if we don't truly have love in our heart, it will come out through that thing. So here's my question for you this morning. If you would be willing, if you would be humble, this is a very dangerous question to ask, but it's a humble, loving, Christ-like, gospel-centered question to ask. Go to somebody who knows you well. Go to somebody who sees you often and ask them this question. If I were not to retaliate in anger at your response, can you tell me ways that I come across unloving? If I were not to become angry by your answer, can you tell me ways that I could do a better job at loving you? What are ways that I have loved you, that I have made you feel loved, cared for, because I want to repeat those. The reality is sometimes we love the way that we want to be loved. That's selfish love. We need to love others the way that it communicates love to them. We need to know them, know how love is communicated to them, and love them that way. Even if it makes no sense to us, it's loving, and it takes care of their hearts. How are we doing with this love? Jesus says the extent of our love is that we love others the way that he has loved us. Back in John 15, he says, Greater love, verse 13, has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. He says, that's the extent of my love. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And I'm not just going to do it on the cross. I've done it every day of dying to my own desires and living to love you. That's the extent of our love. But it doesn't just stop there. Jesus doesn't just say, love as I've loved you, end of point. He then moves on to number two. We'll call it the intimacy of our love. The intimacy of our love. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. He calls them friends. This is the intimacy of the relationship of love that we have with Jesus that we're supposed to encourage others with, that we're supposed to share with others. He calls us friends. This is a different relationship than they have ever experienced with the Lord. Even in the Old Testament, there's only one person who is explicitly called the friend of God. That's Abraham. Moses, by implication, you could say was the friend of God because God says that he speaks to Moses as one who speaks with a friend. But those two people are the only people in the Old Testament that the Old Testament clearly tells us they're friends of God. This friendship is new because of the gospel. This friendship is new because of the work of Jesus laying down his life for his friends. And this friendship turns our obedience of his command to love others from a burden to a joy. It turns it from something that would be burdensome, keeping rules and regulations, it turns it into a joy. That's why he says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That can be a little bit confusing. You are my friends if you do. Sounds like if you are obedient, then you become my disciple. That's actually the opposite of what it's saying. It's saying not that you will become 
but because you already are. If you are loving, if you are keeping these commandments, then you're my disciple. You're proving that you're my disciple. Again, as Ryan prayed so powerfully this morning, we cannot add to the work that Jesus did. We cannot, by keeping his commandments, become a disciple. We keep his commandments because he has already made us his friend. He says, you are my friends. And this is what will characterize those who I have befriended. Commandment keeping, loving others. His followers, his friends, do what he's telling them to do. Obedience does not make you a disciple. It proves you are a disciple. And so Jesus says, you're my friends if you're doing those things. You are clearly proving you're my friends. And he says this in verse 15, No longer do I call you slaves. I don't call you that any longer. Now, very clearly, this is not saying that we cease to be slaves, but we are more than slaves. Jesus does not stop being our Lord, but he expands his relationship to being our friend. We don't cease to be slaves, but we are brought in as friends. And why are we brought in as friends? He says, I call you friends because everything that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. I've revealed everything to you. As we talked about in Family Bible Hour, we know something about everything. We know the purpose for which the universe exists. We know the reason why God does everything he does. And we can jump on board with that purpose because he's told us, he's revealed that to us. To a slave, you would, you would be told, do this, and you would never say, why am I supposed to do that? You just do it, unquestioned. But Jesus says, I'll, I'll give you the reason why. I'll give you the reason why. Remember those moments when you would ask your parents, they would give you a command, you'd say, why? And the answer was, when they were fed up with your rebellion, because I said so. I, I am your authority. I told you. Just do it. I totally understand where that comes from. I've felt it many times in my own heart. Jesus says here, I'm not, I'm not saying that to you. I'm not saying because I'm your master. Just obey. Just submit. I'll give you all the reasons why I'm telling you to do what you're, do, what you're supposed to be doing. I'll unfold it to you. I'll make your obedience easier, simpler. Your Christian obedience now is not about being a rule book. It's about a love relationship with the one who says, I'll tell you why you should do everything you're doing. You don't do what he commands and therefore become his friend. You do what he commands because he calls you his friend. He says, I've lavished my love upon you. Do you want to join me? Do you want to follow me? Loving him means obeying him. To have love for him, you must be saved. Paul tells us that nobody can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the work of the Spirit. So to love him, you must be saved. So obedience is an aspect, uh, an evidence of salvation. If you love him, you obey him. You can't love him if you're not saved. So obedience is an evidence of salvation. That's why 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 says that if we don't love our brother, we can't say that we really love God. If we don't love those around us, we can't say that we truly love God. So again, I ask the question, do you love those in the body that you don't really like hanging out with? Jesus says, I call you friend, intimate friendship. It's easy to love the people that we love. 
How well are you at loving those that you're not a fan of? We have cliques, yes, we do. Even in a church that's very small, we still have cliques. It doesn't, it's okay to have best friends, right? The Bible clearly tells us that. Jesus had 12 disciples, and then he had three that he really liked hanging out with, Peter, James, and John. It's okay to have best friends. We're talking about exclusion. That's what a clique is, excluding others. These are my best friends, and, and I won't love others around me. If we're to live out the intimacy of the love that Christ has given to us, then we need to love those that we don't even enjoy the most. And as we start going through those motions, as we start doing what God has commanded us, those feelings will come. We can't exclude others because Jesus has not excluded us. He's made us his friends. Here's the reality. It's way easier to come to church to greet one another and then to leave than to truly love each other. It's way easier to just walk in the doors, greet one another, hey, how are you doing? A little fellowship time. And then leave than to actually love. These meetings are for the purpose of launching us into a week of loving one another, genuinely loving one another, being there for each other in an intimate way, praying with each other, meeting with each other, caring for each other. And this love is costly, uncomfortable, sacrificial, painful even. But there's no better way to be Christ-like than loving like that. Jesus tells us the extent of our love, love as he has loved us. The intimacy of our love, we are now his friends, and we love others with that kind of love. And finally, number three, the origin of our love. The origin or the source. How do we love like this? If you're anything like me, you read these verses and you say, okay, this is really challenging, this is incredibly difficult, and I don't know exactly how to get going on this. How do I begin? How do I start? What's the first step that I take? I'm glad you asked because Jesus answers. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. What is the source? What's the origin of this kind of love? We love others. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love others because he what? First loved us. Actually, in the Greek, it's just we love because he first loved us. We love God. We love others. We love the world. We love the non-believers around us. We love just period because he first loved us. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says the same thing. Our love for one another grows from the love that God has given to us. So the beginning of, of loving others the way Christ has called us to love others is to look at the love that he's given to us. He chose us. We did not choose him. We are friends, God is saying, because of my effectual call on your life. Our friendship with God was initiated by him, not by us. We can't really say that about our earthly friendships, right? You can't go to somebody and say, you are my friend because I picked it. You can't do that. You, you can't look at somebody and say, I don't know who you are, but I choose for you to be my friend. That's a, that's a very strange, we can't say that in our earthly relationships. But we can with God. God says, you are my enemy, and I will woo you. I will speak to your heart. I will bring you to a place where you love me. If you are a slave of Christ, and you have been elevated to a friend of Christ, it's not because you chose him. It's because he chose you. The reality in the scriptures is choosing him goes against everything in our nature. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, nobody is righteous, no one seeks after God. Ephesians chapter 2, we're spiritually dead, we can't do that work to call out to him, to ask him to save us. 
We didn't choose it. It goes against everything in our nature to choose him. So he had to choose us and turn us, speak to our heart, change us from the inside out, give us greater affections, give us new affections. If it was left up to us individually, we would never choose God. That's what Deuteronomy 7 says about God's choosing of Israel. The Lord did not set his love on Israel because of anything that they did. God chose them because of his love for them. Now, some people look at this verse, you did not choose me, but I chose you. They look at it and they say, this is just the choosing of you to be a disciple, just to be one of the 12. I picked you, 12 guys, instead of anybody else because I picked you. Is he talking only about the choosing of his disciples alone? I think, just for sake of time, we can't turn there. John 1, verse 35, if you go write that down and go back and look at it, historically, the disciples choose Jesus first. They go to him and they say, because John the Baptist told them, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they say, we'll sign up, we've been waiting for this. We want to be a part of your crew. So historically, the disciples choose Jesus first. That's one of the reasons, there's other theological reasons, but I don't think this verse at all is saying that the disciples, uh, Jesus picked the disciples to be disciples. What Jesus is saying is, I picked you for salvation. This is God's sovereign grace, calling, choosing, ordaining, predestining, electing, however you want to say it biblically. And he uses the language, or Paul's going to use the language that's used here. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, not only does he choose us for salvation, but he's appointed us, middle of verse 16, that we would go and bear fruit, the fruit that we talked about in verses 1 through 11, and that our fruit would remain. It's not going to die off because Jesus chose us. We can't lose our salvation. Jesus chose us. We will remain in him if we're truly saved. And whatever we ask of the Father in his name, he's going to give it to you because we're asking for more love, more fruit. We want to love others and keep his commandments. God's choosing gives us the choice to choose obedience. God's choosing gives us the choice to now choose obedience. We didn't have that choice before. Now we can. Some people say, I don't like all this choosing stuff. I don't like this, that I didn't have a choice and God made me have a choice. There's a lot of places we could go. (laughs) Unfortunately, we're running out of time. I want to give you two quotes that I have found incredibly helpful. The first is from a, a man named Mark Webb in a book called What Difference Does It Make? He says this. He was teaching a, uh, a class on Romans chapter 9, all about God ordaining, electing. He says this. After giving a brief survey of these doctrines, the doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled, and she said, this is the most awful thing I have ever heard. You make it sound as though God were intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved and receiving to himself only the elect. I answered her in this vein, you misunderstand the situation. You are visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get into the door. And God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but no, you cannot. And you may come, but no, not you. The situation is hardly this. But rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction toward hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one, and stops that one, and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. And this is the way he ends this quotation. 
Election keeps no one out of heaven that would otherwise have been there. But it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who would otherwise have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. I think that Mark Webb gets it absolutely right, biblically right. We struggle with this idea. God chose me. I wanted to have some part in this. And Horatio Bonner says this, If I admit, a great hymn writer, if I admit that God's will regulates the great movements of the universe, I must admit that it equally regulates the small. It must do this for the great depend on the small. The minutest movement of my will is regulated by the will of God. And in this I rejoice. Woe to me if it be not so. If I shrink from so unlimited control and guidance, it is plain that I dislike the idea of being wholly at the disposal of God. I'm wishing to be in part at my own disposal. I am ambitious of regulating the lesser movements of my will, while I will give up the greater to his control. And thus it comes out. This is the reason why he says, I struggled with this doctrine. I struggled with this idea of God choosing. I didn't like it. And I realized why. Thus it comes out, I wish to be a God to myself. I want to be able to be a God in a certain way to make that choice. And Jesus says in John 15, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And the fact that I chose you is the origin, is the source of living out obediently, verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. If we are going to look at this and say, wait, I want to glorify God by obeying his commands, being obedient to love others the way he has loved us. We say, how? Jesus would say, live on the love that I gave to you. I gave it to you. So as we wrap up this text, I think we can just in conclusion say two things. Number one, live out the love of God. We must live out the love of God. God has given us a love that we are to lavish on others. The extent we should be dying for others. Our will dying to love others. Meet their greatest needs. Love them the way that they most feel loved. You say, well, I don't really feel like loving them. Here's the good news for you. This word for love is not about your feelings towards them. It's an act of the will. You can choose to obey God by doing what he's told you to do, even if you don't feel like it. It's an act of the will. It is accompanied by emotion, and I think that if you do what God tells you to do, it will be accompanied by those emotions down the road as God blesses your obedience. Feelings will follow. Do what you're called to do. Live out the love of God. Here's just an honest question. Do people feel loved by you when they're in your presence? Do people feel loved by you when they're in your presence? Do they feel an overwhelming sense of care, an overwhelming sense of compassion and kindness for their souls? I think if we had the privilege of walking with Jesus, uh, wearing sandals through Jerusalem, walking side by side with him, we would feel the affections that he has for us. True spiritual maturity is not how much you know, how much you lead, how much you serve, how much you do, It's how much you are willing to go low in humility to love others at great cost to yourself. 
Secondly, finally, we not only live out the love of God, but we live on the love of God. Live out the love of God by living on the love of God. Jesus is our perfect model of obedience and love, and he says, I chose you so you can rest in my sovereign love for you and love others with that kind of love. He chose us so his love for us will never dissipate. It will never go away. So we can love others at great cost to ourselves, knowing that we will always have a steady stream of love from God to our souls. And that's all we need. We don't need to love others hoping and wanting their love in return. Praise the Lord, he didn't love us that way. He loved us while we were enemies. He loved us knowing that even when we became his friends, we'd still mess up, we'd still sin, we'd still commit cosmic treason against him. And that's why we gather together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the means by which we remember to live on the love of Christ and then live out the love of Christ. Look at what he did at such great cost to himself. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You are his slave, and he says, no longer will I call you slave. You're still his slave, but he'll call you his friend, and he'll make known everything to you. He loves you with such a deep, deep love. As we contemplate his love for us, let's remember what his love cost. And let's have ringing in our ears as we prepare to partake of communion the reality that Jesus says, love others as I have loved you. We get to see his extent, again, the extent of his love. We get to see it on full display as we celebrate communion. Father, I pray that as we are preparing our souls to partake of these elements, as we sing of the deep, deep love of Jesus, as we sing of the way that you have loved us so deeply, so effectively, so effectually, at great cost yourself. God, I pray that we would love others that way. But before we ever attempt to take a step in that direction, may we live on the love that you've given us. And as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, God, I pray that we would remember, that we would feel anew and afresh the power of the gospel to change our affections to change us from the inside out. That you would so graciously give of yourself for wretched sinners. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul. May we sing the glories of your deep, deep love as we prepare to partake. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.